Section 23 of The Perfect World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mrs. L. Sid. The Perfect World by Alice Grimsour. Section 23. Death in Jupiter. They walked down a lovely avenue to the outer gates. It was grass-covered, soft and velvety and cool. Birds with the gayest plumage hopped among the branches of the trees and came fearlessly up to the strangers. One bird, perhaps as big as an English bullfinch, of many colors and with a fan-shaped tail, perched on Mavis's shoulder and chirped prettily to her. "'How wonderful!' said she. "'Did not your birds do that?' asked Wazikeshta. "'No, they were too nervous.' "'Nervous? Yes, frightened, terrified,' she explained." I understand the meaning of the word you utter, said he, but you will not find the sensation of fear known on Kimar. We live in harmony with our birds, our animals, and even our fish. They are all our friends. At the end of the avenue they found themselves on a broad road. Hills rose up at the side, steeply in some places, while in others the rise was more gradual, leaving moorland and valley in view. Houses were built at intervals along the roads, all of wonderful colored marbles, but they were all surrounded by beautiful grounds and added to the scene. Oh, said Mavis suddenly, there's a shop. Wazikeshta looked puzzled and followed her gaze. Oh, yes, you mean our Amdurlis. How else should we get food to eat and clothes to wear? How then do you manage about your coinage? Do you have money? asked Alan curiously. I know not the word. How do you buy things? What do you give in exchange? Oh, we have leka, voila, suka, and minta, said he, and he drew from his purse that hung satchel-wise across his shoulder some coins. The first was square, as large as a five-shilling piece, and green in color. This will purchase the most, he said. Five roilas make a leka. The roila was exactly the same, but no bigger than a florin. Then there are ten sukas to a leka, and twenty mintas. The last two coins were of a bronze hue and as big as a shilling and a sixpence. I expect those five coins are equal to a fiver, a sovereign, a two-shilling piece, and a sixpence, said Mavis thoughtfully. How do you get your money? asked Sir John. Oh, from the Rorka, explained the Waz. I am a Waz. I receive one thousand roilas or two hundred lekas a mervin. The Jaycock will get a thousand lekas, while little Morkaba, who was born of the workers, gets but ten in her food. "'I suppose the shopkeepers make a lot of money,' said Desmond. "'Oh, no. All members of the Omdurlis get one hundred lekas. All that they make above that they are bound to send to the Rorka. He places all the surplus in the general fund, which is held in reserve for all Kimarnians. As each male Kimarnian reaches the age when he has seen the Kaimo rise three thousand and thirty times, he journeys to Hermori, makes his bow to the Rorka, and receives from him his manhood. According to the station and life in which he has been born, and from which he has sprung, so he learns to take his part in life. It is a wonderful system in theory, said Sir John, but how does it work in practice? It is our custom, was all the reply the Waz made. But don't you sometimes find you get dissentient spirits? Don't they rebel against this formality? Don't they want to make more money than is allowed by custom? Don't you sometimes have trouble with these spirits? 
Wazikeshta smiled. In our books of science, we have read that in other places than ours, there were troubles like those you name. That man fought man, brother hated brother, women sorrowed, and children were rendered homeless. We in Kimar know not the meaning of such things. We are happy. We are content with our life. Why should we complain? There were no ugly streets and lines of shops in this wonderful city, but the Omdarlis were to be found here and there at the edge of the grass-covered paths, while the houses lay further back. Everywhere were to be seen happy-faced men and women and laughing children. Bjors driven by Collis, and Bjors driven by the etheric power that was used for lighting and propelling purposes, thronged the streets, and the whole scene was gay and beautiful. Although the sky was a wonderful blue, and all the buildings were of white and brilliant-colored marbles, the whole effect had none of the tawdry or bizarre appearance of the cities of the East in the world. But the whole was soothing and pleasing to the jaded nerves of the earth folks. They turned a corner and found themselves in a short road ending in a cul-de-sac formed by high gates and marble pillars. "'This is one of the houses,' said Wazikeshta. "'Come and see it.' The garden entranced Mavis before she saw the house. It was like a picture out of the fairyland she had dreamt of as a child, the fairyland she had dreamt of as a woman. For are not all true women half-fairies at heart? Is not the mysticism of life itself a fairy gift to a pure woman's mind? Mavis had lived her life among the fairies. As a child, she had played with them in bluebell woods and primrose glades, and when she renewed her own childhood in her baby, she renewed through him her acquaintance with the fairies. Trees overhung the grassy path which was on a gradual upward slope. Burns ran down either side, rushing, laughing, maddening burns. Tiny flowers peeped out among the grass. Lichen-covered rocks reared up majestically from the center of still pools. Gnarled trees lined the way, and their twisted roots formed steps up the hillside. The top spread out plateau-wise, and a blue marble house was built in the very center. It was not very large. A veranda ran all around it on both floors, and the foliage and creeping plants added to its beauty. The door was open wide, and the splashing fountain in the entrance hall looked inviting and cool. Apart from the kitchen and servants' quarters, there were on the ground floor only two living rooms and the entrance hall. Each of the six bedrooms on the upper floor had magnificent bathrooms leading from them. They were like miniature swimming baths, shallow at one end, deepening to six feet, and the water was hot and cold in the pipes. The whole house was decorated in a delicate shade of blue and was absolutely ready for use. Mavis was entranced. "'May we stay here?' she asked. "'I will acquaint the Jakak with your decision,' answered the Waz. "'Now,' turning to Sir John, "'through the garden yonder and down a short woodland path is a garden house. "'Would you care to see it? "'It might suit you, and you would be all near to one another.' "'It sounds most attractive,' said Alan. "'They walked through the garden and down the hill on the other side of it, "'and saw, nestling among the trees, the tiniest house they had so far seen on Jupiter. It was an absolutely perfect bachelor establishment, and the three men decided at once that it was an ideal spot to live in. The Jakak is eager to see your airbird, announced Wazikesta. When may he go? Why, I'd forgotten all about the Argenta, said Alan. Can't we go now? Mavis looked from one to the other. Do you want Des? she asked pathetically. I seem to have seen so little of him lately. Des, come come home and 
baby, you and I will have a long, happy day together. So it was decided that Sir John, Alan, and Master should go back to the Jacox with the Waz and arrange about the trip to the Argenta. Waiting men and maids have already been dispatched to your houses, announced the Majordomo, Marlinock by name. Is the Jacac at liberty? asked the Waz. He is, my Waz. Tell him, if it is his desire, the strangers will show him their airbird now. A few minutes passed and Marlinock returned. The Bures are ready and waiting, my Waz. The Jacac has already started. Outside they found two double Bures ready, and Sir John and his faithful masters traveled in one, while Alan and Wazikeshta occupied the other. Alan was now able to enjoy the scenery through which he passed. The path by which they traveled ran by the side of an island lake, with tall mountains towering on the further side of the water. The woodland nature of the scene with the twining paths and overhanging branches reminded Alan forcibly of the bank of Lac Lomond between Tarbet and Arduli, yet the most tropical coloring of the flora, the wonderful brightness of the bird's plumage, the waving palm-like trees that were interspersed here and there, were unlike anything he had ever beheld. This place seemed to possess everything to make it perfect, mountain, moorland, water, and woodlands. Nothing was missing from this panorama of glory. At last the Argenta hove in sight, and somehow its beauty seemed to have lessened in this land of glory. The silver brightness of its aluminum looked dim in the golden sunlight. The torpedo-shaped body seemed ugly and sinister in comparison with the beauty and symmetry of the Kimarnian airbirds. The Jaycock waited for the strangers to alight, and the Waz whispered his instructions. "'Welcome the Jaycock, my friend,' said he. "'It is our custom. Ask him to honor you by boarding your craft. Let him bring peace and prosperity to your house by stepping across the threshold of your boat.' "'My Jaycock,' said Alan, going to the side of the state shore, "'will you honor us all by boarding our Argenta and bring us joy and peace?' "'You have learnt your lesson quickly and well, my son,' said the Jacac in reply. I will come with pleasure. He walked aboard and was extremely interested in the vessel. But how do you move it? he asked. How does it rise into the heights of the heavens? This is the spirit, said Alan. But alas, it will not work in your atmosphere. There seems no power in it. Perhaps later on we might experiment with your etheric current? The Jacac and his suite were enchanted with the fittings of the Argenta, the electricity, the furniture, the hangings. As they made their way toward the sleeping cabins, Master suddenly spoke. Poor old Murdoch, he's in there, said he. I'm afraid I forgot all about him. Poor chap, said Alan. So did I. And he quickly barred the way. May I suggest, my Jacock, that you do not go in there, said he. A very dear comrade of ours risked his life for us all. He is in there, dead. Dead? asked the Jacock. Sir John bowed his head sadly. Dead, he repeated, and one of the truest servants that man ever had. But if he is in there, said the Jacock with a puzzled frown, why does he not come out? He looked at the others in turn. Why does he not enjoy life with you? Ah, he thinks the Argento will not be safe without him? That is foolish. I will enter. I will assure him he has nothing to fear. But he is dead, urged Alan. Dead? Yes, he died before we reached Kimar. I know not the meaning of the word. The gift of tongues fails me here. Explain dead. Alan looked at him in amazement. 
Death was such a common word in the world, one met with it at every turn. It was strange that it should remain unknown to the Jovians with their wonderful gift of tongues. His life has gone, said Alan simply. But life is eternal, my son. Surely you do not live forever on Kimar? asked Alan incredulously. Ah, uh, no. We do not live forever on Kimar, it is true. But our life is eternal. It was impossible to explain. They had no knowledge of death, yet they, on their own showing, seemed to expect to leave Kimar at some time or other. Surely death alone could remove him? I beg of you, do not go in there, urged Alan, and he barred the door of the death chamber. My son, said the Jakak, I must know all things in my country. If what you call death has entered, then I beg you, acquaint me with it. But it is horrible. Let me see it face to face. It is loathsome, urged Alan. I pray you do not go inside. The Jakak made no reply, but raised his right hand high above his head, palm outwards, and even as he did so, Wazi Keshta and his suite bent low on one knee. The sign of the Chakak, said the Waz. His wishes must be honored, his commands obeyed. Alan moved away from the door, his head bowed in acquiescence, and Marlinok turned the handle of the door and stepped back to allow the Jakak to enter. There was a tense silence for a moment, then from the darkened chamber came a startled cry, a cry full of poignant horror, and with an ashen face the Jakak appeared at the door. I have seen death, said he. I have seen the horrors of sin. Death, until now, has never entered Gimar. Death brings its own punishment. Death brings horrors and adversity. Death! O oh, great white glory, tower of help, mitzer of our fathers, I have seen death in its hideousness. Mitzer the mighty, grant preservation to thy people, grant help to thy faithful. Persaf the Jacock was trembling, his face was white, his hand was shaking as he pointed to the door. What will you do with with that? he asked almost inaudibly. Alan answered him. Bury him, poor chap. Bury? Yes. Do you not dig graves for your dead? We have no dead, my son. I pray, Mitzer, that the entrance of this soul may not bring disaster on our land. But how do you bury? Alan explained, and as he finished, the Jacock's face was more horror-stricken than before. Nay, my son, bury you cannot. That would be impossible here. He turned to the Waz. Does not the sacrament of Shalrik Itata take place within eight Kaimos? Yes, my Jacock, answered Waikeshka. Akmarn sent cards for all to attend it. It will be the biggest feast I have ever known. His seed is mighty, his seed is great. Five thousand and ten cards have been issued, and yet five thousand and more still clamor for admittance. Good, answered Persoff. This, pointing about him, all this must go. Summon me, Miss Rath, the high priest. Bid him bring his waters of purity and his smoke of sweet odors. Bid him bring his choir of young voices and bid all prepare. A sacrifice will be offered to Mitzer. The great white glory must be appeased. Alan and Sir John were very mystified over the whole scene. These Jovians did not seem to understand death, yet they spoke of sacrifice. I am sorry, my son, said the Jacock. I can save nothing for you. All must be burnt and offered to Mitzer. Come now, I will draw a ring around the contaminated spot, and we will witness the destruction from without. Sir John and Alan were both loath to have the Argenta burnt, 
but being dependent on the Jovians for their entire future, they were unable to demur. With a silent prayer for the friend who had given his life for him, they left the ship and stood some way off. After an interminable time of waiting, a mighty blast of music burst on their ears, and they saw a procession of etheric jores coming towards them. The first stopped, and Miss Rath the high priest alighted, followed by priests and acolytes in quaint garments of ecclesiastical cut. A procession formed, two acolytes with censers led the way, and wafted the glorious perfume from side to side. Then followed one of the most mystical and picturesque ceremonies it was possible to imagine. Almost of mosaic grandeur, it thrilled the watchers. They were unable to understand what was being said. All was in the language of the Cumarnians, but the meaning was plain. The high priest offered the Argenta and its contents to Mitzer, the great white glory. He offered it with its fine workmanship, its precious metals, and its body of sin. He asked that through the mediation of the sacrifice, any evil might be averted, that the entrance of death might bring. He consecrated the Argenta to Mitzer. He consecrated the ground it contaminated. He poured the waters of purity across its bow and named it Mika, the bringer of knowledge. Then the Argenta was sprayed from stem to stern with a milky fluid that dried like little curds all over the vessel. A torch was lighted and applied to the ship. Little flames ran along, meeting each other until they merged into one great hole. There was a loud roar and a noise like thunder, and the Argenta, the hobby of a lifetime, the fruit of patient labor, was no more. Sir John watched with a set face, but as the fire died out and he saw that the hole had been swallowed up, had consumed itself entirely, he crumpled up and lay inert upon the ground. End of section 23